Tonight I'd like to uh, give a talk on metta in practice. And I'd like to start by telling the story of how the Buddha gave the first teachings on metta. So the story goes that there was a community of his monks and they were getting ready to do a period of extended intensive practice, a little bit like you. And as part of this, they had gone out and looked in a number of different places to try to find a community that would really support them during this period of time because they would need shelter and they would need food and, and medicine and access to those kinds of things, and they needed to get those from lay people. And so they went out and looked in a number of different places, and they finally found this place that seemed to be just right, And the community was willing to support them. The community was even willing to build them little kutis, little meditation huts for them. And this place was in the middle of a a beautiful forest that had clean water and um, it was optimal climate, so it was really good. And this was a big chance for the monks because they themselves were going to be getting customized individual instructions from the Buddha. And so the likelihood that their practice would result in enlightenment were high. So, so far so good. It's a happy story up to this point. So the monks get their instructions from the Buddha and they settle into their practice. And living in this forest are a group of beings that are not usually visible to humans, but which are called devas. And these devas um, live in and around trees, especially the tops of trees. And the devas, because they have such great respect for the practice of the dharma, when the monks are there practicing, need to come down from their abodes in the treetops and be lower at the same level as the monks, out of respect. So the monks come to town. Unbeknownst to them, the devas' routine is upset. They have to leave their abodes. They have to come down to the ground. But the devas are on board with the practice. So for the first few days, this goes smoothly. And the devas are glad to do it. But after a certain point, it starts to occur to them, these guys are here, like, for a long time. (laughs) And their generosity started to sputter. So the monks are practicing away, and the the devas have a little conference among themselves, and they decide that, well, you know, maybe we could make it just a little less nice for them to be here. You know, without actually really doing anything to them, we could kind of do some things that would cause them to, as they say, move on. (laughs) So they started doing certain things around the monks, like uh, having these loud shrieking sounds and um, sulfuric smells and 
various strange occurrences. And the monks who were trying to do their customized instructions got completely freaked out after a while. They started to think that the place was haunted and there were evil beings there and something was going to happen to them. And their mindfulness completely disintegrated. They fell into the hindrance of uh, aversion <laughs> as well as uh, a number of other things. And But because the Buddha had basically okayed the place and said, yeah, it's really good, they decided, well, you know, we better check in with the boss before we, you know, make a move and leave here. And so they went back to see the Buddha. And they told him about what was going on and how afraid they were and how disruptive this was to their whole experience. And the Buddha said to them, no, 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 don't leave. It is the right place. It is an optimal place for you and your practice will bear fruit there if you continue. What you really need to do, you need to get a grip. (laughs) Okay, You need to work with your mind. You need to cultivate the opposite of the fear and anxiety and terror that you're experiencing now. And he gave them the teachings of metta. So I'll uh, chant for you now the actual teachings that the Buddha gave the monks with a little uh, postscript to it added. So this is uh, an English version. So this is what he said to them. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away. Those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-craving, is not born again into suffering. So this is the basic teaching from which we get the meta-practices that we do. And in the story, to round up the conclusion of the monk's experience, they went, they took the practice, they went back, they did the practice, and there arose within them a sense of safety, a sense of internal security and well-being. And the field shifted with the devas. The devas themselves decided they no longer wanted the monks to leave, and so they they supported their practice uh, to its conclusion. So you can see by the story and the way it ends that metta is a natural antidote to fear and hatred in all of their forms. As their opposite, it neutralizes them and ends the suffering of those particular kinds of states. And you noticed in the chant that the Buddha compares metta to a healthy parent's love for a child. And it is a naturally (coughs) occurring emotion and attitude that we as human beings have. It's a very simple and organic kind of quality, but it's also a state and a resource that we can develop further and we can actually turn into a power of mind. We can actually extend and generalize this attitude until all beings are included. And in its furthest expression, this particular quality of goodwill is boundless, meaning that it's completely inclusive and equally directed to all beings without exception, regardless of their relationship to us. So the conclusion of the development of this this state is that we can actually abide internally in a state which is inclusive and benevolent, a kind of Uh, inner world of our own making. Now, when you look at other places in the teachings where the Buddha talks about metta, there's one story in particular that I find really interesting where he's kind of exhorting his monks. He says, you know, if you're, and these are monks, if you're a follower of me and some guys come along and grab you, 
you know, and they, they actually take a two-handed saw and use it on you, your practice is to pervade metta towards these beings as this occurrence is happening. Now, I would call that advanced practice. (laughs) But there's some interesting things around this particular story that are important to clarify. So sometimes when we hear these stories, we can get an idea that is a bit incomplete and can be troublesome. So the Buddha isn't saying you should um, uh, let yourself get caught by the guys with the two-handed saw, right? He's not saying that uh, it wouldn't be better to remove the saw from the possession of these individuals or even container, remove their ability to do this in the future, right? He's talking about if you're, in a, if you're in a situation that you cannot escape, the highest level of practice would be if you could sustain this kind of attitude of mind. Understanding that that's a very, 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 very high bar of practice, right? So it's important to understand that in Buddhist uh, teachings... Intention precedes everything. So, those of you who may have uh, dogs may know that when you're training a puppy, there are a number of different things that can assist you in doing that. You know, various kinds of collars and leashes and things like that. Uh, one of the kinds of collars is called, something that's called a gentle leader. And then you kind of like put this around the, the puppy's muzzle and, uh, you know, they'll go along with you if you um, use this in a very non-resistant way because it's kind of natural to them in, in some kind of way. The halter of a horse is the same kind of thing. And, and the idea is, you know, if you can control the head, you know, the leading edge of the, of the puppy or the leading edge of the horse, the rest of it is attached and goes along behind it. Right? And our minds are a little bit like that. So we're really enjoined, we're really encouraged to look at intention and what our intention is and to be conscious about intention and to cultivate particular kinds of skillful intention. So intention always leads our actions. All of our actions are preceded by intention. Very often the intention is not visible to us, which means that we're running on whatever our current conditioning is. But we can cultivate particular skillful, particular wholesome intentions deliberately, which will then move our whole system, whole heart-mind system into development in a particular direction. So grounding ourselves in metta doesn't mean that we lose the capacity for 
uh, activity. And in fact, many social justice movements are actually empowered when they unify people through the kind of action which is powered by metta. And these movements can become very powerful because they have a kind of moral credibility and they have a kind of way of uh, presenting their case and their claim for justice in a way that minimizes the amount of backlash that's there for other people and doesn't create the kind of fear that can result in uh, uh, retaliation or return uh, aggression. Now, if we were going to look at metta and where it fits in with the Buddha's teachings of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path, which are the fundamental uh, teachings or the fundamental scaffolding of his teachings, you can find them really close to the front of the Eightfold Path. So the first step on the Eightfold Path is wise view, which basically says the Four Noble Truths. is a review of the Four Noble Truths and the fact that there is a path. But the second step, the very second step, is wise intention. So it's right up front as an orienting principle. And this wise intention points to basically two different dimensions of the teachings, which is uh, renunciation of sense desire as the primary uh, point of everything, as the primary uh, orienting principle of our lives, and the cultivation of non-harming, which means metta, uh, this loving-kindness, and karuna, or compassion. So this quality of metta is there in the attitudes of mind which are called for in the practice and the attitudes which are strengthened in the practice of the path as well as telling us right up front what is the direction of the path. The direction is towards the cultivation of non-harming and renunciation. That's where it's going. That's the vector, the energy vector. That's the commitment in that kind of direction. And of course you can may also know that metta is one of the paramis or one of the perfections of the heart. So this is something that we practice on the path, but it's also something that strengthens and develops and purifies all the way along. When this quality is fully developed, the heart, along with the other paramis, the heart and mind are liberated. There are a number of classical benefits from metta that are uh, also part of the Buddhist teachings. One is you'll sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you will have pleasant dreams, people will love you, Davis and animals will love you, eventually. <laughs> Davis will protect you. External dangers will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused, and you will be reborn in happy realms. And I, I would add to that, uh, if the Buddha doesn't mind my little footnote at the bottom, that 
you will act with care, respect, and good intentions towards all beings. So if we were going to look at this quality, which is to be cultivated as part of the path, as part of wise intention, there's the possibility of cultivating it directly. And when we do metta practice, that's actually what we're doing. We're directly cultivating this. And metta can be done as a standalone practice. It can be done as a primary practice. And I would go so far as as to suggest to you, if you've never done this and you've been practicing for a while, that a, a whole retreat and of a good length, like this two-month or one-month retreat that would be dedicated exclusively to metta would be a really wonderful complement um, to your insight practice. So it, it's wonderful to consider by engaging in chosen kinds of intention, the intention towards metta, that we can actually strengthen the arising of this particular quality of the heart and mind so that it comes to us spontaneously more frequently and more strongly. And another thing that's amazing about the practice of metta is that there's a two-for-one benefit with it. Not only are you grounding the mind in wholesome states, but you're also strengthening your concentration. And for many of us who do insight practice, concentration is really the Achilles heel of our practice. It's, it's what uh, often is the last thing to open up for us. We as human beings have this capacity for what's sometimes called self-directed neuro- neuroplasticity, Or you could say we have the capacity for choosing our own evolutionary direction. Or you could say we have the capacity for creating a beautiful internal world which we then inhabit. And the capacity for purifying the intention of our actions in the external world. So this is all under our control not under our immediate control in the sense that we can demand it or command it to be so, but we can take steps within the span of control or the range of control that we actually have to move things in this particular direction. So that's about metta as a direct practice. And now I want to spend the rest of the talk speaking about metta in relationship to insight practice and why it's actually necessary for the success of insight practice. So you may have noticed from your own direct experience at this point that um, when we start meditation, what we hope for or often our naive expectations um, turn out quite different from what we might hope for. Do you notice that? 
I mean, I, I know I had the idea when I first started to meditate that it would have something to do with light and bliss and, you know, these really wonderful states and maybe even certain unusual body sensations or powers or something like that. Very deep relaxation and tranquility. But you probably have noticed for yourself that, you know, if you come into this thinking that the process is going to generate only calm or peace or blissful states or beautiful states, you're going to get disillusioned pretty quickly. Because we know when we're actually practicing, it can be difficult to even find the body and the breath in a consistent kind of way, right? And while we may hope this process of attending to what's arising will be pleasant and kind of stress-reducing, we often find quite the opposite, right? I I kind of have a little giggle uh, sometimes when I think about how widely promulgated mindfulness practice is as a a stress reduction uh, strategy. And it's true at a certain level and at a certain depth, it, it really is useful and is really helpful. And then there's the depth practice of Vipassana practice where you get scoured. <laughs> you may not have hit that stage yet. But <laughs> I don't want to be planting any seeds of worry in your mind. But, you know, but we find you know, it's very difficult to cultivate moment-to-moment control of what we experience, even though we would love to have that. So when we start to experience our relative lack of control about what might arise from moment and moment, for most of us, this is not a happy discovery, right? We think that we're just like, you know, haven't figured out how to twirl the controls right yet. So often we'll like redouble our efforts to try to, you know, get it to all line up so the wheels are all facing in the correct direction. Uh, because the body-mind system really thinks that it should be able to control things. Because after all, we do have uh, some influence on what happens, and we have periods of intermittent control, seemingly. And so we would like to be able to generalize that. But it doesn't really work like that. And so when the actual experience that we have is different from the preferred version, we don't really like that very much. So in Tibetan uh, Buddhism, the process of meditation is called uh, gom. And it translates, uh, one translation is familiarization. And a good deal of what we become familiar with is our dominant conditioning, including the dominant conditioning of the suffering variety. So I can almost guarantee you that whatever your source of personal individual suffering is, the one that you came on retreat to not experience or to not touch at all, (laughs) I could be wrong. You you may be the exception, but I'm just telling you, it it may come up. (laughs) 
So then given that it may come up, if we don't learn how to relate to and open skillfully to difficult, non-preferred states, our practice is not going to go anywhere. It's as simple as that. You know, unguided, meaning there's no orientation to uh, learning how to work with difficult states or non-preferred states. This is how it tends to be. So the overall heading of this description would be the mind as a conflict zone. In other words, the mind is divided against its experience because it's, it's rejecting it. So there is rejection. There is holding on or the attempt to hold on to something else. There's criticizing what is known criticizing uh, of self or criticizing of others or both. In word, other words like you know, judging, condemning, attacking, fleeing, discarding, self-critiquing. Why am I doing that? Why did I let that happen? <laughs> well, you didn't really. It just kind of happened on its own, right? Uh, struggle, attempts to edit or excise particular things, this feeling like things are high stakes, that you need to be on guard, that, you know, you can't let that state come up, or, right, contraction. Holding things out or trying to keep things from arising. Forcing things or kind of rigid attempts to do something like, you know, hang on to the breath, hang on to that baby, hang on to that breath, (laughs) hang on to that breath. Uh, Dualistic understanding of things, you know, thinking of things in terms of this experience I'm having is either good or it's bad or my practice is either good or it's bad or um, this sense of division and, and separation. There's the practice with known meditation objects, and then there's other stuff that's happening that's getting in the way of the practice, which is about the meditation things, the breath and the feed and the stuff like that. And then there's the other stuff that you got to like do the meditation stuff. So you can see the way that it that it's separated. And the contraction that, that goes with that from the, the non-allowing of what's actually present. The resistance to uh, recognize what's actually present and to open to it. So you can see there's a reason why early in retreats there's usually a talk given or reference made to the hindrances. You ever wondered why that talk usually or that reference usually comes fairly early in the instructions or the sequence of Dharma talks? So it, it's kind of um, prophylactic. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're trying to clue people right up front. You know, I don't know for sure. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe, there might be some kind of states that maybe are kind of like this. You know, maybe you notice that. Are they there? Right? So it's a way of normalizing them, right? And it can really be 
important to normalize it because then when they show up as they do, it encourages you to realize that you're not hopeless just because they're there, right? Like this is normal occurrence. This is what happens when the mind starts to observe its own (coughs) workings. It starts to see the whole show, the whole parade of possible uh, psycho-emotional physical states. The whole range starts to show up. And in fact, if, if you look at meditation instructions and some of the conversations that you have in the meetings with your teachers, often those are designed to help you figure out how to recognize, acknowledge, and enter into a skillful, i.e. mindful relationship with the hindrances when they're present. So if the teacher says, well, what hindrances are you having? You can say if you notice. Or you can describe what struggles you're having about what particular thing. And usually right in the middle of that, that thing that is the source of struggle or the thing that uh, you feel is getting in the way of uh, the meditation things is often uh, a nice big juicy hindrance. So given that these hindrances are not preferred objects, right? we don't like them, they're states of uh, suffering, generally speaking. The question is, how is it possible to actually be willing to open to these states in order to learn how to be skillfully present to them? Because, as I was saying earlier, the untrained reaction to it is contraction and away from it because they're dukkha states. What we said the liberative move is to learn how to be present with our full range of experience so that none of it is outside the protection of mindfulness. So somehow we have to learn how to take the hindrances and tap them into our understanding that they're meditative things too. They can actually be meditative objects just in the same way that the breath can. So one of the tasks of teaching Vipassana is to clarify that this quality of awareness as it's sometimes called, or sati is the Pali word, which is often translated as mindfulness, has a kind of open and non-hostile attitude towards what it experiences. So a way I sometimes describe this is that sati or mindfulness gives everything equal valence. Right? It treats everything in the same way. It's equally interested in everything. It doesn't pick and choose. It, it uh, accepts, rec- recognizes, allows, investigates everything in exactly the same way. And to help us get an idea of this quality of acceptance and this quality of goodwill that's part of the 
uh, way mindfulness is inclusive of all particular, all uh, potential kinds of experiences, sometimes it's described as caring attention, right? You've heard the teacher say, bring caring attention or bringing, bring uh, loving awareness to what you're experiencing. So these are ways uh, that are intended to c- encourage you towards a kind of friendliness of attitude towards what you're experiencing. And they also suggest that the body-mind-heart system can learn how to be okay with whatever manifests, however it arises, as is. Now I want to have a, a sidebar conversation here about a particular point so this isn't um, misunderstood by thinking I'm, I'm saying something that I'm not. So when I say that mindfulness trains the mind to uh, be okay with whatever manifests, however it arises, and that there's a basic attitude of acceptance as is, I'm talking about it from the perspective of the arising experience within the mind stream, right? The immediate subjective experience of things as they land, right? As they come up in your mind. This is not saying that you should be passive about what's going on in your life or what's going on in society or anything like that, right? That's a totally different scale. We're saying at the mind moment level, when things land, we want to have a mind that can recognize what it's experiencing have enough collectedness to actually be present in a mindful way so that any difficulties are mitigated in the reception of that experience and any harm is mitigated in the reception of that experience, right? That's the protection of mindfulness. That's why we need to strengthen this capacity of our mind. Then from a mind that's collected, a mind that's equanimous, then action comes forth, which is grounded. It's not wild reactivity coming out of distress, right? It's skilled. It can go where it needs to go. It can be much more uh, effective in that kind of way. So this is not the the same thing as you should accept all social conditions, right? You see the distinction? We're talking about immediate experience as we subjectively receive it. We have to learn to recognize what it is and in a certain kind of sense be able to hold ourselves in that, right? To not be thrown off by it. To not be, you know, um, pushed over by it, blown over by it. But be able to keep uh, a kind of equipoise. So let's talk a little bit more about grounding practice in this wise intention, this intention of non-harming and of metta. So consider for a moment the difference between a friendly and an unfriendly mind while doing practice. Now, you've probably noticed 
two different ecosystems in there. So let's compare and contrast a mind where there's some basic goodwill present and one where there is not. So if ill will is present, meaning aversion in any of its forms, and it's known mindfully, there isn't a problem. Why isn't it a problem? Because the ill will is being met with this kind of connectivity, this kind of receptivity, this kind of balance and uh, non-judgment of sati. So the practice is being protected and it will continue to unfold because the ill will is going to be held with care and wisdom because mindfulness is present, it's been maintained. Ill will is present, you know it, with mindfulness. Okay, so let's take version number two, where mindfulness is not present with aversion. So there's aversion. Mindfulness is not there. Okay, now this is a hindrance acting as a hindrance. So how do you know this is the case? A big clue usually is that you're suffering. So the suffering is there. Practice is off track in this particular case. But let's assume that the mind has meta-established. Either it's the dominant mind state or it's one of the mental factors that's present there along with sati or mindfulness. So if metta is there, then there's also concentration. If metta is there and strong, there and is strong, then there's also concentration. And wholesome concentration has the effect in con- combination with mindfulness, of closing off the hindrances. So if you have periods of practice where you're not experiencing many strong hindrances, it's because the ho- wholesome states are present, including metta, but, and especially mindfulness, and they, in effect, crowd out the field for the others to be possible. It's like saying two different diametrically opposite mind states can't occupy the same mind moment. So if metta is there, then, and concentration is there, then the hindrances are going to be closed off or or weakened. And this in turn strengthens the uh, mindfulness further. And the practice unfolds. If metta is there, in a concentrated way, then it's in a wholesome state. The mind is in a wholesome state. And the presence of one wholesome state, especially when it's known with mindfulness, basically increases the likelihood of the arising of further wholesome states. One wholesome state, especially with mindfulness, tends to Uh, increase the proliferation of other subsequent wholesome states. If metta in the mind is present in the mind, there is also a kind of safety and ease. And that means that when difficult states arise, and they do arise, including the hindrances, the mind will come to its own rescue with self-support. So the mind is more likely to be able to resource itself. 
because there's some goodwill there towards the self and towards the practice and towards what's being experienced. Right? We all know how painful it is when we're going through something that's difficult, a stronger and intense kind of hindrance. And the reaction, the mind doesn't have any meta in it, and the reaction of the mind is kind of to turn around on itself and kind of double down and punish itself for having something really painful happen, right? There's a big difference between that and the mind that is experiencing something that's difficult, something that's painful, something that's hard to be present to, and the internal reaction of the mind is the arising of metta and the arising of compassion and a kind of you know, self-holding and self-soothing and self-encouragement in uh, relationship to the difficult state. If metta is present, the mind is also more easily... Uh, opening to whatever it experiences, and it is inclined to let go of the picking and choosing of things. It's a lot less critical of what is happening, and it's more able to focus on what and how things are happening, how things are manifesting more able to observe the flow of things from one moment to another. And that's really where, with sustained uh, seeing, with sustained presence, are really the conditions under which wisdom arises, under, under which, which our internal learning takes place, is through sustained mindfulness, sustained connection with our body-mind uh, process. So if the mind's got metta in it, metta present in the field in some way, the mind is inclusive. It's more in harmony with what's going down. So it's connecting with interest. There's some goodwill towards the self. There's spontaneous self-support. There's more allowing. There's more accepting. There's more capacity to actually do investigation of states. Investigation is what mindfulness does. It looks into things and how they work. How suffering is created uh, from moment to moment and how it can be let go. The mind is inclusive of things as is. There's illumination of what is present because there's a willingness to see it all. The mind isn't darting around so much looking for something that it likes and trying to get away from something that it experiences as non-preferred. There's a more friendly attitude towards uh, all phenomenon, even the difficult ones. The body-mind system is... uh, less threatened by what's known because metta creates a sense of safety internally. There's more ease. There's more opening that's possible. And the system can hold a non-dual perspective on things. It doesn't need to have the same kind of boundaries, right? Anything then can be in the center of the field. 
And from that, that perspective, that way of practicing, which we can't do by will, this, you know, these, I'm talking about uh, capacities that emerge over time with practice. I'm not saying we, we can hop to this and make this happen, but by orienting our, our heart and mind in a particular kind of way and, and remembering this is the way it actually does evolve once everything is in the field and everything is treated with equal valence, the overall reactivity of the system for and against its experience starts to turn way down. And then is the arising of equanimity. And equanimity is the place from which very deep insight and transformational experience actually uh, takes place. So let me, another sidebar conversation, say something about equanimity also. So this is a quote from uh, Shinzen Young, who's a Western Buddhist teacher. Some of you uh, probably know of him. And the this is what he says about equanimity where he's clarifying the difference between equanimity and passivity and indifference. So I'm picking up this point again about what's being called for in practice and what the implications are for our our daily life and our capacity to respond. Because I've just been encouraging you to treat everything with equal valence in your practice, right? So we'll go back to that. What does that mean in real life? Do you just let it roll all over you? This is what he says about uh, equanimity, which I said is the uh, emergent uh, aspect of mind that comes forth from this kind of practice that learns to be equally present with everything, to treat it all in the same way. with the same uh, dignity of attention. He says, equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. I'll read it twice. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seemingly similar Equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel and experience things as they are, and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feelings is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. Right? So he's saying you're no longer driven into reactivity, but the capacity to choose action which is skillful is optimized. So the practice goes in this direction towards the cultivation of equanimity, which is the last of the seven factors of of awakening to usually come online. 
So you can see the role of metta in this. Because metta is intricately involved with us finding, learning how to accept what we experience with some baseline of goodwill, some baseline of safety, some baseline of internal support. So if we were going to say, well, so how can you use metta further to support your, your insight practice, now that we've talked about the role that it plays in practice? There are a couple different things that you could do. You could dovetail metta practice, metta the method practice with the phrases and the, the intention, the rest of that, into your insight practice. So you could do that by adding a practice period of metta at the beginning or at the end of your sittings. So why would you want to do that? So there are certain circumstances under which it could be really uh, skillful and beneficial to you. So if you want to encourage the mind to more concentration... If you want to uh, ask the mind to actively do something in particular, if it's drifting and disengaged, you could turn it towards this particular wholesome state and give it something to directly cultivate through the use of the phrases. If you want to invite a feeling of safety and to counteract the hindrance of aversion, whether the active one of anger or the the fleeing one of fear. If you want to uh, provide self-support when things are difficult. If you want to remind the system of the skillful attitude to take towards practice, towards what arises in practice and towards uh, the self and others, So, in other words, you could enter or exit your insight practice by regrounding in this quality of wise intention and remembering for yourself this larger framework in which we're doing this, paying attention to the breath and attending to body sensations and attending to emotions and all the rest of it. Just reminding ourselves, okay, part of what's going on here is the cultivation of goodwill. This is foundational to what, what's going on. Let, let's see how that can be brought forward a little bit more as, as a resource uh, to support the under, unfolding of our, our uh, rather amazing capacities as uh, human beings to be with the full range of what we can experience. So just to... Uh, Settle with that, then I wish you all adventures in metta. You know, you, it's a simple, deceptively powerful quality. It's not the, um, it's not an inferior practice in any way. Very much involved with 
empowering you to actually do the insight practices and in opening up the higher reaches of insight practice. It can't be done without this quality being uh, present in the mind. So happy, happy adventures. And, uh, and remember, you know, just because uh, there are sulfuric smells and loud creakings and shriekings and things, it doesn't mean that it's time to uh, abandon the woods. You just got to do the right practice. May the merit of our practice be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May we invite the presence of metta in our hearts and minds, allowing this natural capacity to be brought forward in fruitfulness to support our liberation and that of others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.